You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Without further ado, we're getting into the Word of God. We're back in, continuing on in the, the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me physically to Philippians chapter 2. Yep, we're starting chapter 2. We got all the way through chapter 1. Took us about a month and a half. We're moving slow. Um, But this book has been so great, and God's been speaking in powerful ways. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles on the tables as you walk in, or just encourage you, in addition to bringing like your hydro flask now to church, bring your physical Bible as well. Just get in the rhythm of that because it's so healthy and good to just open up physically to the space where God has us. And so Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is our text today. What I want to do is I want to read it and then pray over it and then get into it. But just as a way of recap, just to know context sake what you're reading. If you've been with us the last six weeks, we probably repeat this every week because context is really important. But if you haven't been with us, what the book of Philippians is, is a letter. So it's really a letter or an epistle to the church in a city called Philippi. So Philippians are the people in that city, Philippi. And Paul the Apostle is writing this letter. He's penning it while in prison in Rome. And the reason why he's in prison is for his faith. Paul is a church planner. He's an apostle. He moves all the way from Israel. He's moved all the way out through Asia, Middle East, Europe, all the way to Rome now, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's been persecuted for that. And so he is under lock and key, under house arrest, by the Praetorian Guard. And he's writing this letter. He's actually writing a few of these letters to churches and pastors, kind of as a last final words. Again, he isn't sure that he'll be able to see them again. And so what he's doing is he's communicating some of the most important things that he wants to stress to them. And even though this letter was written some 2,000 years ago in a really different culture with a really different people group in a different time, this letter is meant for us as well. And so as you read it, again, I've, I've like said this almost every Sunday, Read it as if it's a letter that God is writing to reality Honolulu. This is a letter that was written to the Philippians, so don't take it out of context. But the lessons, the things that it's trying to communicate is as potent and relatable and important for us even as much or more in the context that we're in today. And so this is Paul writing this letter. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Therefore, because of all that I just said, chapter 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, really, without it, we are lost. We are 
We don't know who you are. We don't know your character. We don't know your plans or your will for us. But we have it. You preserved it through the test of time. Your word is the most historically accurate book that mankind has. We have it in our laps today, in our language. We thank you for it, and we know it's not only a historical document, but it is living and active. It's the very words of God written for the people of God. And God, uh, each of us are in a different place this morning. I want to be, I'm going to be mindful of that. Some of us, it's our first time to church. Some of us, it's the first time to this church. Or some of us have been walking and, and attending church and reading your word for 50, 60 years. And each of us are going through stuff right now as well. Some of us, it's good times. Some of us, it's really hard times. But Holy Spirit, we know that you are able to meet us right where we're at. So do that, Holy Spirit. Anoint me. I pray that I'd be your mouthpiece to communicate these truths. And Lord, as we read it, today can be confronting, challenging. But I pray that we wouldn't um, receive it in any way, in a condemning way, but we'd receive it out of love and care that we'd want to live into these things that we hear today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Paul is doing here in this second chapter, or this you know, second part of his letter, is he's kind of asking some rhetorical questions. He's reminding them that of what they've received in Christ. And if any of these things that have come are good, or they've brought, you know, have bettered their lives or their community, which is kind of rhetorical because it's absolutely transformed their life for the better. But Paul is doing is he's reminding them by these rhetorical questions of what they've personally experienced with Jesus and his people and this church. And what he's doing is he's making a plea, or actually I think a couple pleas to these people to live into a new way of life, or to continue to live into a new way of life. And really, there's three pleas. If you're taking notes, which a lot of you do, which God bless you, it's helpful. You remember better that way. But number one is the plea for unity. Number two is going to be a plea for humility. And number three is going to be a plea to love others. And Paul does this a lot. He, he not only is... Um, a pastor and a teacher, but a lot of times he's uh, good at defending a case and persuading them and reminding them, in light of this, I want you to live into that. He's trying to build a case by how your life has changed with Christ. If it's anything good, if you've, if you've experienced any of his love, if it's changed you at all, in light of that, do these things. He's charging them, he's challenging them, he's calling them to action. But I would say it, it does feel like a, a plea, number one, a, the first point is a plea for unity. And he's saying, in light of all that you've experienced in Christ and because of Jesus, what he's saying here is, be of one mind and live with one spirit. Okay, so what does that mean and what doesn't it mean? David did a great job last week touching on this. Um, go back and listen next week if you or last, to last week's sermon if you haven't. But what Paul is saying here, this unity in the church, what it does not mean is uniformity. Again, this is 
piggybacking David last week. What Paul is not saying is that we all should look and act and are the same, on the same page theologically and politically. And if you are a part of a church, you are just homogenous. Paul is saying, that's not what I'm saying. But what unity inside of a church is, is what it does mean is that we all follow Jesus and we serve and live for Jesus. And he is the thing that unifies us. It's unity actually amongst diversity. That's God's will. Not that all of us would just fit into a mold that if you go to church, you're going to find a group of people that are exactly like me on every secondary or tertiary issue that's ever existed and every view on anything social unrest in the world. Sorry, it's not going to happen. And it's not intended to happen. That's why. And what, unfortunately, I'll say this, what God's people are really good at doing, sadly, is dying on a hill that isn't a hill that you should die on. You know that phrase? Oh, I'm going to die on that hill, on that issue. That's my issue. I'm, that's the issue in, in the world or this doctrine or this theology this thing, I'm going to die on the hill of my interpretation of that thing. There's some things in Christianity that we should all die on the hill of orthodoxy, right? There's, there's tenets of the Christian faith that makes you Christian. The virgin birth or Jesus dying on the cross or him actually forgiving our sins. Like there's a few huge tenets that if you don't believe in those tenets, then it wouldn't be called Christianity, but there are a million different secondary and tertiary and even down the list issues, interpretations that Christians, I think, again, my personal opinion, were really good at making those secondary and tertiary, third, right? The main thing. And we'll die on it. And we'll divide over it. <laughs> and we shouldn't. And, you know, I'm not that old, I don't think, 38, but I've been in the church, like in vocational ministry, like my full-time job, for 17 years. So all my 20s and almost all my 30s. Been a part of a lot of different realities. I even got the name wrong today. And, you know, as much as pastors, we have our different churches, we all hang out, we all talk about stuff, because it's really not just our own thing, like it's across the board. But sadly, over my experience, Christians uh, break fellowship and leave churches for far less than the main things. Happens all the time. I wish I didn't have the amount of stories I do. But it happens all the time that instead of being unified amongst our diversity, we, we really are, we get really caught up with maybe non-biblical things or secondary issues, and then all of a sudden, People leave churches and switch churches and divide over. And really, it's sad to see how many people have left churches for personal or political uh, rather than biblical reasons. And again, you take a poll, not just our I mean, you just take a poll of Christianity in general. You ask every pastor that's ever pastored a church. And they'll be like, let me tell you the 20 different things that people have left the church over. Some, some are, like, valid, for sure. Like, some, there's reasons to leave churches. Absolutely. Again, I could do a whole series on this. 
But leave the church well. Just leave the church well. And tell your pastor. Please. If you haven't told your pastor that you left your church, you've got to go back and text him. Bare, bare minimum text. Safest way. I just feel for my fellow pastors. If you left a church, you've got to just, even though if you're like, no, they'll never know, just text them. Even if it was like 17 years ago. Just text them. They're still thinking about it, honestly. It keeps us up at night. Sorry. There's reasons to leave the church. But Paul's plea here, it says, be careful what you leave over, though. Because it is okay to disagree in any church how we approach a cultural issue or address something. Because we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's totally okay to agree to disagree on a lot of things, but let's agree on the main stuff. And let's still fellowship together. And let's know we disagree about the other stuff. Still love each other. And still be in fellowship together. But again, unfortunately, that's not always the story. But again, 2,000 years ago, this was happening. This is not a modern day thing. It's not an art church thing. Like, all the time. I mean, Paul, most of Paul's letters are to churches about, like, say, stay unified, stay together. Hey, keep Jesus the main thing. Like, all that other stuff. Yeah, it's important, but it's not the main thing. And again, it's happened then, it's happened now. But to the end, till we see Jesus face to face, till he comes back, the devil, the world, the flesh all want to splinter and divide the church. Like, that is the devil's game. That is the, the, the world's game. Like, that's the flesh. Like, division, strife. All of that. But God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to keep us together even if we're like totally different. God wants to fight for unity amongst diversity. And this is what it should do for us in the church. For one, it should be a vision of heaven on earth. Because the vision that God gives us of heaven is that every tongue, tribe, and nation is worshiping together in one space. Like, the, all, all of the world, in all of its cultures, all of its languages, somehow is worshiping God on his throne. So, if you think of that as like, what is the church locally here on earth supposed to look like? It's supposed to look very different. With a lot of differences, but we're all worshiping one God. With, in our church, right, the, the church, any church, should be a representation of God's kingdom here on earth. Of one mind and one accord, being a people, following Jesus together to see his kingdom come. But what it also should do for people outside the church is a really powerful example. It should be a really powerful example that, wait, how are all these different types of people in one room on a Sunday morning gathered, unified around this person named Jesus? That is a powerful example to the world around us that we're about more than the things of this world. Because, right, that's, that's how the world is right now. Like, we're divided by everything that makes us different. There's not a lot of things in the world today that wants to, like, bring people's differences together to be unified. There's not a lot of things that can, but Jesus can. 
It's proven that. And really, the most ideal church, and this is Paul's plea, is that we're supposed to be really like a smorgasbord of personalities and upbringings and different ethnicities and different jobs from different socioeconomic statuses, like a spectrum of ages. Like that is what the church is to be like. And that's what I think any pastor hopefully is trying to pray into and cultivate and asking God to do is that we'd be a church filled with every different type of people, but that we'd be worshiping God united. And I don't know if you said this because you guys have all said it to me in one way or another, but in kind of uh, processing our church, a lot of times you say, hey, I don't, I normally maybe wouldn't hang out with everyone here at church. They're not naturally, you know, into the same things or the same age or they have the same personalities or are from here or not from here, whatever it is. I normally wouldn't hang out with this group. And every time I say, praise God. <laughs> because if you just said, oh, well, I come here because everyone's like me and I just get along and we, and, we, and we agree on the same things, I'd be like, oh, no. Oh, no. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I would miss it. But that is the beauty of what God's done here just in a tiny way. And again, that is the plea that Paul is giving because this church in Philippi, just like any church modern day, had people leaving, they had people coming, there was differences of opinions, and easily, it could have splintered, could have divided. But Paul's saying, hey, be of one mind and one accord, and remember the main things, and remember who you serve, and that's what he's doing. That's number one, the plea for unity. Number two, he, plea, he, he makes a plea to them for humility. If Paul, Paul had issues, Paul was not perfect, if Paul, uh, if you, Paul came to me and said, hey, Pastor Riz, what do you think I need to work on? I would say, hey, dude, you're so prideful. And you read that through the letters, and he's kind of like saying it. But Paul, he struggles with pride. There's reasons for that, but that's a part of his sanctification. That's a part of his growing in Jesus. And, and to be honest, he, he actually had a lot to boast about. Philippians chapter 3 he tells us like his pedigree and where he was born and the tribe he was born and his abilities and his skills and kind of like his resume. And there's actually a lot that Paul, he, he was actually pretty great. But I do think that Paul knew pride. Paul knew spiritual pride. He was really proud and he was really good at stuff. So it, he struggled with it, I think. And the reality is, as Christians... With our beliefs, right, if you believe what the Bible says and believe who Jesus said he is, then you also feel a certain way about the world and its origin and who created it and the way to salvation. And it's really easy as a Christian to become holier than thou. I'm better than you. I know the right way. And we can really easy easily, excuse me, slip into religious or spiritual pride. I don't know if you guys have seen this or struggled with it, but you probably will at some time in your Christian walk. You're like, ah, oh, I got it all together. I'm right. You're wrong. And if you're not careful, you can come off that way. And what Paul is doing, his, his tone and his tenor here of this, of this first couple of verses, 
is something like this. I think if, you know, to paraphrase him, I think what he's telling them this morning is humble yourselves. Like, don't, don't let this get to you. Remember where you came from. Because the truth is, God's grace is all that separates you from those that don't believe, that aren't yet Christians. And that's true for us today. But if, you know, but we can get into this trap of thinking that we are just so much better to people that don't know, that we can come off that way and actually turn off people from coming to know Jesus because we're on our, you know, soapbox, our pedestal, whatever you want to say. And Paul is saying, hey, be careful to not grow and live in a prideful way. But he's pleading for humility. And really, this is coming from what Jesus contended with more than anything with the religious pride and arrogance from the Pharisees. Like if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Jesus, if there's some main characters to the story, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? And the Pharisees were the, the uh, Jewish, Jewish religious leaders at the time. And what had happened to them is that they had gotten so legalistic with their own interpretation and understanding of Scripture, of the Old Testament, the Torah, that they actually, when Jesus was fulfilling all these prophecies, when literally he was the Son of God in front of them, miraculously healing, and people are getting raised from the dead, and the blind are seeing, and the paralyzed are walking. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, this is the guy. They're so blinded by their legalism and their interpretation, they actually missed out. Instead of believing and receiving Jesus is who he said he was, instead they embraced him as a criminal and crucified him alongside other common thieves. But it's rooted. Do a study on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's the root of why they missed it? It's, it's spiritual pride. It's legalism. Cloaked in holiness. It's a slippery slope. And so pride, spiritual pride, religious pride, can be really destructive. And so Paul's plea is one of caution and a call to humility to not think too highly of one's self. That doesn't mean that you can't have like some self-confidence or know what you believe or walk in, in boldness. But he said, but do it in humility. Again, which all leads to Paul's main point, I think, of the text today. And this is the third point. Is a plea to love others. Right? Paul is saying, hey, as a people, be unified. Even if you don't agree on everything. Like, be of one mind and one accord. Do it in humility, but for the purpose of loving others. If you want to know what Christians should be like, if you are a Christian, this is where you should like go, oh, yeah, let me make sure I know what I should be like. Paul hits some really key points here. But this is what, as a Christian, this is what we're to live into. We, we are to be a people that die to ourself and that we prefer others' interests above our own. Like that is what's supposed to mark us. That's what's supposed to delineate us from people that do not know Jesus. 
We're, we're to be a people that love our enemies. Yeah, love them. Pray for them, which is very counterintuitive. It's usually the world's way is retaliation. Justice, eye for an eye. But the people of God, we're actually supposed to be marked by our love for our enemies and laying down our lives for our friends. This radical generosity and sacrificial love is actually some of the main things that's supposed to mark us. And again, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, those that were against him, they asked him, out of the 613 Old Testament commandments given by God through the law of Moses, right? Right, these are Old Testament Jews asking Jesus, hey, if you are who you say you are, well, what are the most important of these 613 commandments that we should live by? Which ones are the most important and which ones must we follow? And Jesus responded to this question, Matthew 22, 25, uh, 34 through 40, excuse me. This is this, the conversation goes like this. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he adds, Jesus adds, and the second is like it. In other words, like equal to it. Or alongside it. Or connected to it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the uh, prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying, out of all 613 commandments, out of all that you've heard out of the prophets, loving God and loving other people, sum them all up. Number one and number two are intertwined. And, and here's what I would like, if you forget anything, like here are the last five or ten minutes of this tonight, today. The way in which we love others is directly proportionate to the love we have for God. This is where I think there's a, there's a misstep. Christians are really good at like, again, I'm talking as a Christian and as a pastor, so I can, do, I can do this. We're really good at like loving God sometimes. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But when the rubber meets the road on like actually loving those that are different from us or praying for our enemies or forgiving those that we've harmed, we do like a really bad job. We have a disconnect. Not all the time. A lot of times it's great, amazing, spirit-filled, transformed people. But a lot of times I don't think we connect the two. That our love, how we treat people is directly connected to our relationship with God. And there's a lot that the Bible has to say about that. It's pretty straightforward and it's a bit confronting. But in 1 John chapter 4... John speaks of this. So I want to read it. Um, it's just a section of verses from chapter 4 of 1 John talking about this. He says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Verse 11, he says again, dear friends. He's talking to Christians here. Since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. We love each other because he loved us first. Here's where it gets confronting. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Right? It's all good. Dear friends, dear friends. Love. Okay. And then he says, but. And again, this is John speaking to another group of people. This is Paul speaking to another group of people. I could say to us today that our love for each other is directly correlated to our love for God. And how we love each other and how we prefer each other is also directly related. And what it means, and what he's saying here is you might say you know God, but how you treat others is a window into what you just said. Especially, right, it's really easy to love people that act like you look like you, share the same common interests, you have a relationship with your friends. Really easy, maybe, to love people that are just like you. Really difficult, though, to love people that maybe you don't naturally get along with. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you don't see eye to eye. Maybe you disagree on a lot of things. It's really difficult to love these people. But again, how we treat others is the litmus test to the depth and the validity of our own faith. I know that's heavy, but also I think it's really good because I think what it should do is it should give us like a, like a heart check, I like to call it. Go, okay. Like this would be the time where you're like, okay, let me think about that. Like let me think about the way I love people. And do I prefer each do I Do I prefer the interests of others above myself or like Paul said are we filled with selfish ambition or are we other centered do we prefer someone else actually do we prefer everyone else other than our own again there's nuances to that that doesn't mean that you can't care for yourself and um, have self-care and like you have to take care of yourself or else you'll die in many ways it doesn't mean just like ah, totally self-denial and like I'm not a human anymore because I'm just preferring everyone else. I'm getting taken advantage of. That's not what it's saying. You just jump to the wrong side of the spectrum. But this is a challenge to live into the way of Jesus with how we treat other people. And we've all been tested with this. The last few years has tested all of us. Because all of us have strong opinions. All of us disagree with people. 
all of us have a lot of, yeah, we all are in different camps across the board. But how are we loving the people in the different camps? How are we treating, talking about, you name it. How are we loving the people that are different than us, that, we, that you may never agree with? Because you're like, I'll love them until they agree with me. You're like, dude, that's conditional love. That's not what I'm talking about. How do you love someone that you maybe disagree with and you maybe never will see eye to eye? That's what it's talking about. That's what it's talking about. It's a challenge, but it's a good challenge. Really, kind of as a way of application, walking with Jesus and treating others the way of Jesus that Jesus wants us to I think starts with a choice. This is what I mean. A, a lot of life is this. Sometimes it's not. But a lot of times when you encounter someone, like let's just say it's uh, as simple as the, 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 if you don't use self-checkout at the store, it's like, you know, your checkout person at Target or Walmart or whatever it is. You have a choice to smile at that person. You have a choice to ask them how they're doing. You have a choice to respond well if they're in a bad mood. You have a choice. You have a choice to, hey, I'll bag that for you. I'll help you. You have a choice to, to like, be kind to this person that you don't even know. And, and much of it goes, goes even farther, right? Like when you're in a relationship with someone, whether it's a friend or family, you have a choice to be kind. You have a choice to forgive them. You have a choice to honor them. You have a choice if you want to call them back or not. I, I don't want I'm not putting a guilt trip on any of us. I'm just saying that a lot of it comes down to choice. Some stuff happens and we don't have a choice, and there's like obviously nuances to this, so don't hear me wrong. But I think so often we don't think of it that way. And the reason why, um, or what, me, what, what it makes me think of is, <clears throat> I think you know this, one of my first jobs when I was in high school was in an outburger. And um, it's, they're like, you know, they're customer service, but they're very, very into like customer service. And you got to go through trainings and there's like, I mean, they're very serious about like the customer's always right and it matters your facial expressions, your questions, how you respond to people. Hey, like they take you through like difficult customers. Like it's like a very high... Uh, I'm really thankful for what it, a customer service job. I would suggest everyone, if you just please, send all your kids to customer service jobs. It's going to make them better because in that moment, I learned from an early age, I have a choice to get mad or respond sarcastically or I can put a smile on and, like, let me, let me love them despite them totally not being really nasty to me. Right? You have a choice. And again, that sometimes can feel disingenuous, but it starts there with our Christian walks. And here's the beauty of it, though. It isn't just on your own strength. God gives us his Holy Spirit so that not only are we transformed into his image, but he gives us the strength to love people when we choose to love people. And so today, I think there's a, Paul, a plea for unity, there's a plea for humility, and there's a plea for loving others. And Paul says, do you want to live into this? 
Because God's done all this stuff for us, but now do we want to walk with him into these things? Do we want to grow? Do we want to ask to be changed? Do we want to change? And so my charge and my prayer for us today is really to just live into really the identity of loving others the way Jesus said we should. And I'll end by the words of Jesus, because you should always end there. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, people will know that you follow me if you love them. That is the telltale sign of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, if we love one another. So I will land the plane there. I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us to supernaturally love those in our life, to be the people of God to the world around us. Amen? Amen. God, thank you for this reminder, even though it, it can be challenging and it can be complicated as we practically think what that means for maybe relationships that need a little attention. Thank you that you don't leave us hanging, you don't leave us alone, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that literally like the power and the person of, of, of God dwells in us. And God, I'm I, I just speaking for myself, I, I want to choose to be more like you. And I pray for all of us here that want that too, that you would, that we'd live into that, that we'd become more like you. That we'd be more gracious and more loving and more merciful and more giving and more generous and that we would be ambassadors of Christ to a world that is so desperately in need of you. So as we enter into this time of worship, Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in us, speak to us, that it would be a time where we reflect and respond to the way in which you've spoken to us. But God, I do pray for all of us that we would choose Christ today, that we would choose to live for Christ, that we'd be choose to change, to be changed into the image of God more and more daily. We love you, love you, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.